All right, if you want to take your seats, we're going to be in Psalm 51 today, um, a very significant psalm. As you may know, Psalm 51 rose out of a, a, a famous incident in the life of King David. David was attracted to another man's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. Uh, he sent for her. He had an affair with her. And then in order to have her permanently, he had her husband killed in, in battle and um, I think the whole story can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. What I want to do is begin with, a, a, I mean, a blunt question, and it's this. Did David rape Bathsheba? Like, based upon the biblical definition given in the book of Deuteronomy, it doesn't seem like it, because in, I think as it's written in the, in the law there, you have to have a victim who cries out in anguish, and you have to have like the use of physical force. But when you think about it in terms of more a contemporary definition of rape, um, it it seems like it's at least in the ballpark. I mean, you have the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the world, calling for a woman who was not 10 years younger than he was, not 20 years, but 30 years his junior I mean, somebody, he's lusting after someone who could basically be his granddaughter, the most powerful man in the world. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized we don't want David to be a rapist. Like, we actually feel much more comfortable with him being a stone-cold killer, a murderer, than we do an abuser of women. It's also interesting how different people down through the ages have treated Bathsheba, Um, In 1635, the Baroque artist Peter Peter Paul Rubens, he paints a a portrait of her, and she's this, you know, scintillating, voluptuous nude. Then Rembrandt, a few years later, also paints a picture of Bathsheba. It hangs in the Louvre today. And uh, again, she's this, you know, sumptuous nude, but she's this also kind of conflicted and, and almost downcast spirit. Today, many point an accusing finger in her direction. Uh, They ask, well, why was she bathing on top of a building? Uh, A purity culture guidebook speculates that Bathsheba was lonely and wanted to be watched. It compares her to women who show too much skin. Um, Another chastises her for her public nakedness, saying that while David had initiated, she was asking for it. Thankfully, the the majority of biblical scholars, commentators, they realize that that that's just hogwash. Why was she bathing on top of a building? It was because that was a common place where you would do so. You know, up above street level, up above watching eyes, up uh, above in privacy. I mean, it's not her fault that the king's palace just happens to be the highest building in the city. We also are told in the story that she was taking a bath on the seventh day at the end of her menstrual period because that's what you did. You took a bath um, to kind of, to be ceremonially clean. So what she was doing was altogether righteous. The story gets even worse. Turns out that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of one of David's, David's closest advisors, a man by the name of Ahithophel which means that most likely she would have grown up within the royal court. I mean, it's not that much of a a speculation to kind of assume that 
There were days when she was playing in the royal court, playing even around, you know, Uncle David, just as, you know, a, a little girl. I give all of this background for you to see that if David was simply a weak man tempted by a, a, a temptress on a dark night, she was being seductive, he, he couldn't, you know, uh, con- contain his urges, like that's one thing. But in the reality of it, like this is, this is the work of a dirty old man. This is the work of a, a leering voyeur who's on the top of, or up in the palace looking out, lusting after a woman, as I said, who could have been his granddaughter. And then, you know, he has the husband killed. What's significant about the, the man Uriah the Hittite, turns out Uriah was one of David's so-called mighty men. When David was on the run from King Saul, he, he was fleeing for his life there were a few men who voluntarily came forward and risked their lives so that David uh, would remain safe. I mean, th- this is a blood brother. This is a guy who risked his neck for David, and he steals his wife, and he kills him. He, he does it in the most callous way. He, he hands him his death certificate. He says, take this letter back to Joab, the, the commander of the army in, in, in the field. And, and the letter is basically... It's, signed, it's his death warrant, and he has Uriah carry his death warrant back to the field. Well, nine months pass, and Nathan, Nathan the prophet comes, and he tells David a story about a rich man who steals a poor man's family lamb, their only lamb. Uh, David doesn't realize that it's a ruse, and he says, he's just furious. He's, he's just flabbergasted, and he says, the man who has done this, he deserves to die, and, and Nathan, with you know, a wave of the hand and a point of the finger, says, Thou art the man. You're the man. And in that moment, David, I can only imagine, is just inundated with, with a wave of horror. Uh, the, the horror of self-discovery. The horror of having um, a mirror held up before your eyes and seeing what looks back at you is the most ugly ugly thing in all of the world, the most ugly thing he has ever seen in his life, and it's from that context that he writes this incredible psalm about being restored to God, Psalm 51, so let's read it. Psalm 51, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Now, I realize that's a, an overly dramatic reading of it, but that reading is so much closer to the, to the real thing than the way you and I mostly read our psalms. I mean, if you th- even when we do the whole, whole responsive reading in church, right, we, we do it in such a way that it's entirely divorced from all emotion. Right? You know, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot, blot out my transgressions. Like, these were songs. These were songs that were supposed to unlock the emotions. And I think that we totally, like, we miss the boat. We totally misappropriate the Psalms when we divorce them from all of their emotional content, either when we're silently reading at home or we're reading aloud at church. So, yeah, a little overly dramatic, but probably not 
too bad. For I know my transgressions, verse 3, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then verse 6 is kind of wonky in the Hebrew. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You want me to possess wisdom. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, which was the very thing that happened to you know, the, his predecessor, King Saul. The spirit was taken from Saul. He says, don't let that, like, don't let me be a, a Saul, a Saul 2.0, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O oh God. Which he, you know, like in their world, if somebody murders somebody, the family's allowed to come and take that person's life, that blood guilt. He was liable to it. Deliver me, Lord, for you are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, my sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So going through a psalm like this, this epic psalm, it's like walking down a hallway with, in a manor house and there are tons of doors along, um, along the highway, hallway, highway, hallway. And I can only point out three of them to you. I can only open three. And I, we're going to just skip by tons of, of doors. And I wish that I could... Uh, preach longer and, and hold your attention long enough to show you more of them. But we're going for three. One is uh, we're going to look at the text, this, a specific point in the text. The second is we're going to say something about culture. And the thor- third is we're going to say something about restoration. So verse, uh, first, verse four, where he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How can he say that? <laughs> against you, you only? Only? I mean, he had sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against his hun- country, his fellow countrymen. How can he say against you only? And, and the way that I'd like to maybe wrap our minds around this, Aaron and I went to a marriage conference a few weeks ago. It was on the west side of town over in the wigwam. And it was fantastic because there's like no kids, no, no cleaning, no cooking, no, just no responsibilities whatsoever. And the content of the conference was pretty good. One of the activities they had us do in our free time was to think through how we, 
how every one of us like, has avoidance patterns where we try to avoid you know, difficult things with our spouse, difficult things about ourselves. Like, we're, all, we're all massive avoiders. We reflect on that. And then on the last night of the conference, we were to sit down with one another. We were all in the same room. And they said, well, take, take your chair, spread out. And what I want to do, we want you to do is set the chairs face to face like this close enough that your knees are nearly touching one another. And they put in the lap of one of us a small little chalkboard. So if you can imagine it, everybody in the conference is spread out face to face, knee to knee, one chalkboard in the lap. And they said, what you're supposed to do is write on that chalkboard uh, a sin that you wish to confess to your, your spouse. So you would write it down, and it, hopefully this came out of some of your own self-reflection about avoidance. And you'd say, like, I'd say, Aaron, um, I've sinned against you in, in this way, and I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry for it. I did it for this reason, and there was no excuse. And will you please forgive me? And then you hand them the chalkboard, and there's this beautiful cathartic moment where they take a rag and they wipe, wipe the chalk off. <laughs> and she says something along the lines of, you know, yes, I give to you what Christ has given to me, forgiveness. I forgive you. Love um, doesn't wipe the other person out. It wipes the slate clean. And what I found in that um, moment, several things. I mean, one, like, it's a beautiful expression of blot out my transgressions, you know, because that's the same idea, right? We're, we're taking it off the books. We're taking it off the slate. It'd be just, it was like a wonderfully cathartic to have that rag take away the chalked sin. The second thing, though, that I found was how difficult it was to, to look her in the eye through the whole process. Because my eyes wanted to go every which direction except, you know, pupil to pupil with her. Um... And I'm, we've been married, it'll be 25 years in the middle of August, August the 15th. Um, and she's the person that I feel most secure with in all the world, the, the person I feel, you know, certainly most in love with. And yet, to, to look in the eye with that kind of proximity, I think that was it. It was the whole face-to-face, that near with one another. I mean, those of you who've been married for any length of time, when was the last time you sat that close to your spouse and, and looked them and just maintained eye contact the whole time. I mean, it never happens. I mean, most of us are masters of distraction. You know, we pull our phone, we pull, I mean, I, I want to be distracted by anything more than just having to hold, hold her gaze for that long. And so what I wonder, what's going on here is if when David says, you only, he's not denying the fact that he sinned terribly against Bathsheba and Uriah, but if you only isn't, in fact, an eye-to-eye, an eye-to-eye expression, it comes out of that kind of gaze with God. Um, and I, I don't think we do much of that, do we? I mean, even in our Christian subculture, where we confess our sins as we did earlier, every week. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But, I mean, most of our confession of sin is so perfunctory. 
And it's so fast. I mean, there's absolutely no time to like get two chairs and, and go face to face with Jesus and really think about what I'm, what I'm saying. You know what I mean? We just like, we blast through it. We run through it so quickly. We, we miss the entire emotional tone of saying, I'm looking at you and I'm asking for mercy. We miss all of that, don't we? I think that's one thing that comes when you, when you really spend time um, eye, eye to eye. You'll discover that you didn't just break God's rules, you broke his heart. You didn't just break, you didn't just break the law, you, you, you broke something that was really precious to him. Like Bathsheba was his, not David's. It was the Lord's. She was the Lord's, and Uriah was the Lord's. She was his daughter. He was her son. And that's what you see when you gaze eyes to eye, eye to eye for a while. I think our default flinch is along the lines of, well, I guess I could screw up, but like theft, adultery, murder, that's not really me. Psalm 51 says, if you'll spend any time eye to eye, um, why not you? <laughs> um, if David is capable of this kind of thing, then why not me? Why not me? And so that's the first thing I want you to see in the text. The second, I'll say something about culture. I'm trying to do a better job uh, in my preaching of uh, thinking how the word, how God's word impinges upon the secular culture that we live in. I, I really believe, you hear so many people de- deconstructing faith right now, and Scott talks to you about that all the time. What we really need to be concentrating our efforts on is deconstructing secularism. Because when somebody deconstructs faith, they're really just basically like fortifying the, the secularism that they're steeped in, that we're all steeped in, and kind of like going there, but doing so w- without any self-awareness. So here's my attempt at um, doing that, speaking about culture. And I find that when we, when we talk about uh, views of the self, everybody has a view of the self. Millennials and Gen Z mostly fall into the category of what we would describe as a self-expression view of the self. That is, there is a me with inside of me that is the true me. And, and so what I really have to do is, is kind of go on a journey of self-discovery, maybe kind of eat, pray, love. Um, I need to go, go on a journey into myself to, to find myself. And the self that is in there, the self that I discover, is a self that is fundamentally good. What, I, what we need to do is just like take that self and, and rip it out of the cage. <laughs> um, and anything that gets in the way of me finding that good self and letting it out of its cage is oppression and evil. That's why we have this like cultural platitude here all the time. Be true to yourself, right? Be true to yourself. Um, and we all feel the pull of that. Like not a single one of us doesn't, doesn't operate in some way with that in the back of our minds. The, the problem with it, among many, is it fails to recognize that we're multifaceted creatures and we need something to help us understand what part of ourself is actually good. <laughs> I mean, there's a me inside of me that has an insatiable appetite for potato chips. And if you give me a bag, <laughs> I mean, I can take a bag down in 30 minutes easily, right? Is that the true me? Is the, the, is the true me, the, 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 the me with an insatiable appetite for, for potato chips or sex 
or alcohol or, or pleasure? Is that the true me? Um, the, the problem with be true to yourself, it assumes that the self inside of me is kind of already perfect. And all I really need to do is put my glass slippers on and click my heels three times and I, I'm off to wherever, wherever it was that I want to, uh, you know, travel to. But, but how do we know if our feelings, which largely govern the way that we behave, if our feelings are actually true feelings? <laughs> I mean, David's a classic case in this instance. When David was calling for Bathsheba on that dark, sultry night, did David feel like an adulterer at that moment? No, he felt like a lover. And what could be better than, than to be a, a, a kingly lover? Yeah, and so how do I know what, what um, my feelings, if, if they're the true feelings, the true me, um, beyond just trying to use my own personal happiness as the standard. Or, and this is getting a little compli- uh, uh, not complicated, uh, uh, controversial, like w- when we talk about identities, um, how do I know what is my true identity? You know, many on the left, they say that they honor all identities, but, but how does someone know if a self-determined identity is good or bad? You know, the Nazis, extreme case, but the Nazis develop, uh, uh, developed a, a white supremacist identity, which thankfully the left um, says is not a good identity. Or on the right, there are those who are all for adopting a strongman identity. Like we need a, a strong leader and it doesn't matter what he does because as long as he's battling people that are worse than him, you know, a king like David who, who determines might determines right. I'm king, I'm justified in whatever I'm going to do. Um, no, in, in reality, no one honors all identities. You can't honor all identities. Everyone is importing some moral framework in which we determine whether or not identities are good uh, or bad. What I love about David here is in his self-reflective process, he is interested in answering not only the first question, what did I do, but the second question, why did I do it? And in verse 5, he begins to realize, I'm not only concerned about the fact that I did what I did, I'm concerned to know the fact of why I did what I did. And he says in verse 5, he says, surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What he's not trying to say there is that he, his, his birth came out of like a, a crazy sexual liaison. What he's saying is you know, the Christian doctrine of original sin, which is there's a rottenness inside of me. Um, there is an evil within. There, there is something so fundamentally wrong with me that it goes back to the very first moment my heart beat. Um, and if that's the case, then it means we can't blame it on our circumstances. Uh, we should never ever say, circumstances made me do it, because while circumstances may shape our sin, they never cause our sin. Sin is ever and always caused because you and I want to do it. It's because we want it. And the other thing that um, David's reflection in verse 5 shows us is that we, we can blame ourselves and not our enemies. I mean, left and right both produce a kind of person who blames their enemies for everything. <laughs> Have you noticed that? The left blames the right. The right blames the, the left. They, they, all, they need their enemies, actually. They need them to serve as a scapegoat for, for 
so that they never have to look inside and figure out what's wrong inside of me. They actually share the same view of the self, which is inside of me, whatever it is, is fundamentally good. And so um, the last thing I will say on this is, um, you know, the Bible uh, writes Psalm 51, God writes Psalm 51, not so that we would look at David and think how much worse David is than you and me, It's to say that even a great man, even a warrior, even a poet, even an athlete, even the king, even a man as great as David is capable of this because there is inside a malignant evil that is rooted deeply in every human heart. And for you, for you to be true to you, you have to first figure out what part of you is true. Finally, David's restoration, because that's where this, this whole psalm goes, is his being restored to God. When, da- when Nathan confronted David, and he has that shocking, I've been discovered moment, and I, I, I imagine most of us have been there. We got caught um, doing something that was horrible, that was terrible, and we we're so full of shame. And I mean, it seems like we, we can feel self-loathing about r- fairly medium-level sins. <laughs> like, we can kind of hate ourselves for even the, the medium-level sins, if you know what I mean. I mean, David, he does some of the worst stuff, and, and I just think he has to be flooded with the horror and self-hatred and guilt and shame galore. Like, he gets plunged into the dungeon, the deepest, darkest emotional and spiritual dungeon a human being could go into, and yet he finds his way out of that dungeon. And how does he do so? Verse 5. I mean, verse seven, sorry, another odd number. Verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Now, he's drawing upon a priestly tradition. A hyssop was this bushy branch that the priests would take and they would dip it into either water or in some instances, they dip it into blood. And they would go to, I don't know, an unclean house, a house that has been condemned by the public health inspectors. And they would take um, that hyssop branch dipped into blood and they would flick blood splatter onto the, the helm to make it clean, if you will. I think for me, it's the most fast, one of the most fascinating images in the Bible. Because in our world, blood spatter only takes place on the back of a wall in a murder mystery type situation. But in their world, they, they have this picture of, of blood being splattered on, in David's case, he's imagining blood being spat, splattered upon him. Like not just red, not just a, a blanket sheet of red, but wet, sticky, warm Look, if we walked in here on Good Friday, the night of Good Friday for our Good Friday service, and Carson was up here with a hyssop branch, you know, and we had drops of blood on our faces as we sang, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. And I'm forgetting the rest of the words of the, of the hymn. But if we felt that, like, we would be grossed out by it maybe? We would, we would understand just how powerful it is that, that a victim would die in our place to make us clean and to make us pure. Um, you know, I love the Book of Common Prayer, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. I think you guys pray some of the Book of Common Prayer confessions, but 
the, the greatest one, it might be the prettiest prayer in the whole English language, is Almighty God, we have sinned against you in word and deed. We have, um, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no, there is no health in us. Uh, spare us miserable offenders that we are. It's just beautiful prayer, isn't it? And if you notice, a lot of times when we confess our sins on Sunday, they're, they're pretty beautiful prayers. They're really nicely written prayers. And I think that's the problem with many of them, is they're too beautiful. They're way too beautiful. Because the reality of our sin is it stinks. It's refuse. It's, it's gross. The whole reason I went into that uber-long introduction to the sermon was just so you could sense that what came before this psalm was something that was so twisted and so horrible and smelled so bad and would make you want to throw up to illustrate that that is what we need mercy from, uh, to be delivered from. And so I think we can all relate to Psalm 51 and we've been somewhere that we shouldn't have been with someone we shouldn't have been with doing something we, we shouldn't have done. And the thing that we thought was concealed somehow made it out into the light and we were brought and we were discovered. And there's a way to come out. And that's by you know, looking into the eyes of Jesus, uh, taking, taking a chalkboard, if you will, in your lap and making a true confession, a true confession. For we're told in Psalm 34, verse 18, God is near the brokenhearted and tender to those who are crushed in spirit. Make that your confession in Christ, amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you that you show us in Psalm 51 that there, like every, there's no sins too bad, there's no shame too great that can't be forgiven, that can't be overcome. And I pray for us that whatever you know, horrible things that we have done, whatever massive baggage and, and maybe feelings of uncleanness that we have today, that you would bring us to the foot of the cross and that you would uh, you know, splatter us with the blood and you would make us clean and forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.